This winter, join the Washington Post in its fight against hunger, homelessness, and poverty with a contribution to Post Helping Hand. To learn more and donate, visit posthelpinghand.com. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the cloud-based business management software that gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. NetSuite is offering their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash WAPO. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. And my guest is President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 16th. Today, a forceful mandate to get Brexit done. Pete Buttigieg's quest to understand the Black experience and the downside of 5G. Good afternoon. This, this morning I, I went to Buckingham Palace and I am forming a new government. And on Monday, MPs will arrive at Westminster to form a new parliament. And yes, they will have an overwhelming mandate from this election to get Brexit done. And we will honour that mandate by January the 31st. Last week, there was a general election in the UK, and Boris Johnson won big. He won King Kong big. He dominated. I'm William Booth. I'm the London bureau chief for The Washington Post. He got the biggest majority in Parliament since um, Maggie Thatcher, the Iron Lady, in 1987. So it was a big win for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. And why did he win by so much? Because I think that folks over here are looking at what's happening in the UK, looking at the confusion over Brexit and saying, what would there be that people are like, yes, let's continue on that course? Three little words, get Brexit done. That was his slogan. That was his battering ram. That was his strategy. He repeated that phrase about a gazillion times during the six-week campaign. Let's get Brexit done. Get Brexit done. Get Brexit done. To get Brexit done. You will at last be able to do what? Get Brexit done! Pay attention. People who wanted to get Brexit done chose the Conservatives to get Brexit done. And people who were just sick of Brexit and wanted to stop hearing it and just thought, well, it's, it's never going to end, they also voted for the Tories, the Conservatives. And I, I even think he got some people in the middle who were still sort of wanted to remain, not, not, they didn't want to leave the European Union, but they just, they just, they just wanted the pain to stop. That this is the most expedient way to get this whole process over with. Yes. It was like, let's extract this tooth. Um, I like it, but it, it, it has to leave my mouth. <laughs> so who actually voted for Boris Johnson in this election? Well, all the traditional conservatives, all the traditional Tories came out for him in big numbers. But the interesting thing about this election is is, is Boris, Man- Boris Johnson managed to get like working class folks uh, in the north and the midlands of England, people who'd, whose grandfathers, great grandfathers, fathers, mothers, grandmothers had voted for Labour their entire – for generations. I know how difficult it was and it can be to make that kind of decision. And I can imagine people's pencils hovering over the the ballot paper and and wavering before coming down uh, for us and the Conservatives. And I know that 
people may have been breaking the voting habits of generations. He got them to switch. He got them to swipe uh, Tory curious, right? And these people are sort of working class or upper working class, middle class. And these people usually don't like Tories. They don't like Eton-educated, Oxford-educated, classicists, Greek-quoting, Latin-quoting people like (laughs) Boris Johnson. But they went for Boris like big time. So there's this whole idea that maybe the dynamics of politics in, um, in Britain have changed and that um, these, these Tory fellows, like the Republicans in the U.S., have made big inroads into the whole new sort of voting pool, a new demographic. And why would that be? Why would working class folks in Britain, people who have historically voted for the Labour Party, why would they suddenly be so taken in by Boris Johnson and, and by the new face of the Conservative Party? I think they like Boris Johnson. I think he's a hail fellow well met. He's a good backslapper. But I, I think they loved his slogan, get Brexit done. And he, and he said it and he, they believed he meant it. Um, so, so they went for it a big time. So then what actually happens next? How will Brexit move forward from here? Well, they will have a vote likely this week, Friday, in the parliament with Boris's new nice, healthy, sizable majority of fellow Tories. And they will go in and they will do what they call the second reading of the withdrawal agreement bill, and they will probably thunderously support it. And that means that um, uh, they're getting closer. So they'll, they'll, they'll break for Christmas, they'll read it a third time, um, and then it will go to Europe, and then it'll be done, and then Britain will leave the European Union by January, uh, end of January, January 31st, 2020. It seems like a very short timeline. Well, that just means they leave. Then they go into the transition period. And that's when you and I will be talking for the next several years. But the transition (laughs) period is scheduled to be 11 months, that they want to finish it up by the end of 2020. And that's when they have um, a year to make a free trade or some kind of trade agreement. So if there is going to be this lengthy transition period, then what actually happens on January 31st? Like what will change in the country starting on that day? Well, I I should say probably absolutely nothing, um, because in the big picture, absolutely nothing will change. You'll still be able to, if you're a European citizen, still live here, go back and forth. You won't require a visa. Uh, Things will remain pretty much the same. Trade will continue in the same way. There'll be, uh, you know, no tariff trade. They'll have the same sort of inspection regime. Money will move in and out of uh, London in the same way. Nothing really visibly will change except the government will be just beavering away uh, like crazy trying to set up all these side agreements and these trade deals and try to have a, a smooth exit. So, so that will happen sort of behind the scenes. There'll be lots of newspaper headlines. But for normal folks in England or Wales or Scotland, I mean, they'll read about the politics, but they won't really live it. So when we think about how Brexit has been unfolding for the last couple of years. I mean, the thing that Prime Minister Theresa May always ran into was the fact that she couldn't really get her party behind her to support the kind of the kind of deal that she was able to come up with. So the fact that Boris Johnson has this much more significant majority, will he be able to kind of dispense with all the folks who are critical of whatever deal he can come up with and, and that he has a better shot of rallying the support he needs to to actually get a deal approved by parliament? 
he if, if he screws it up, he's a bad he's not a good politician. I mean, he has a good solid majority. The opposition party labor is just on their back foot. I mean, he'll get he'll get what he wants done, I think, for a while. And and that could be much more than Brexit or maybe much more interesting than Brexit. You know, Boris Johnson's talking about remaking Britain and turning Britain into something new and going off and getting its mojo back. That's what he was talking about on Sunday. Our country's now embarked on a wonderful adventure. And we're going to recover our national self-confidence, our mojo, our self-belief. And we're going to do things differently and better. So he'll be up to all sorts of things, I think. And he's an energetic fellow. Um, so we'll see a lot. Uh, we'll see a lot from Boris in the next few months and years, I think. Bill Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. about how Mayor Pete Buttigieg has been received in this campaign so far in terms of his interactions and discussions around African-Americans. This is not a thing that has gone particularly well for Mayor Buttigieg. During the last debate, he got a lot of flack for saying that his experience as a gay American helped him relate and understand the struggles of the African-American community. While I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country, turning on the news and seeing my own rights come up for debate, and seeing my rights expanded by a coalition of people like me and people not at all like me. For a number of people, that is an eyebrow-raising and almost a pugilistic statement. And Senator Kamala Harris called him out on that right after the debate. Yeah, absolutely. She said he sounded a bit naive and was comparing the two struggles was not a productive thing to do. Listen, for those of us who have been active in the civil rights community for for a long time, it's just really well known that we don't compare struggles. My name is Robert Samuels, and I'm a national political reporter at The Post. And why were you talking to Mayor Pete Buttigieg? I had this real curiosity about his life story. Mayor Buttigieg over the past few weeks has made some curious statements about African-Americans and his relationship with them. And the question has been lingering about whether or not he could actually connect with Black voters. But I had this really more elemental question, which was about what his experience was in understanding his whiteness and his relationship to the African-American experience. If all you have of, of race and race issues is, is kind of a history lesson, uh, then you think as long as you're not kind of doing anything knowingly racist, then, then everything will be fine. But of course, reality is, is that... Uh, um, there's a lot more, as, as you know, is being discussed now, I think, in a very healthy conversation about the difference between non-racism and anti-racism. I wanted to know who his Black friends were, because I had this idea that 
for people who have interracial friendships, uh, really deep ones, there is always a moment where they have this conversation and they have this realization that, oh, actually my lived experience is quite different from yours. And so I started asking around and looking for the people in his lives who had formative experiences with how he understood the African-American experience. And so what did you start hearing when you were asking that question? Well, I heard a lot of stories, and some of them were really unique and fascinating. And some of them seemed pretty prototypical of a millennial young person who was trying to understand privilege. And the first person I spoke with was a TV broadcast journalist named Renee Ferguson. And Renee was sort of this really well-known, hard-charging investigative reporter in Chicago. Uh, She was receiving an award at Harvard, and a politics professor came to her and said, hey, I really want you to meet this guy. He does not want to be a journalist. He wants to be the president of the United States. This was this was back all the way back when he was this at was, Harvard. He so. was a freshman at Harvard. And the Which prof- I think says a lot about him, the fact that as a freshman at Harvard, the professor already knew that he wanted to be president. Absolutely. So he said he wants to be the president of the United States and he wants to know how the media works. And so would you talk to him? And Renee Ferguson does... And she encourages him to apply for an internship. He applies for the internship. And his essay is apparently so phenomenal that he gets the internship. So here he is going to Chicago. He comes into Renee Ferguson's office. Renee asks him what his living arrangements are. And young Pete Buttigieg tells her that he doesn't really have any place to stay. And he thinks he might spend a few nights at the Y. And so she brings him home. You know, I didn't usually take interns home with me. He had to go home with me because I was uh, protective of him being from South Bend and not knowing Chicago like I did. And for that summer, Pete Buttigieg, he lives with a family, a Black family on the south side of Chicago. We all became very good friends. We just did. We became family. And they start to have these conversations about the lived experience of Renee Ferguson and her husband, Ken, and also some of the things that happened while he was on the job. He stayed in our guest bedroom and he walked the dog. He walked through the neighborhood. He was with me on stories and he really did see not just my journey, but, you know, my husband grew up in Queens and his experience was quite different. And you talked to Mayor Buttigieg about this experience. Yeah. What did he say about that time in his life? So he says this was the first time that he understood race and he had an appreciation of the African-American experience that was not found in the pages of the books he read growing up. Until maybe Renee, not a lot that we would actually talk about race with. It was different with Renee because I got to know her well and she shared her her professional experience. And and, uh, yeah, I think I was finally old enough and mature enough to really be um, trying to understand and and talk about these issues in a more mature way. The people we were covering, the stories we were seeing, and even just being, uh, you know, a a temporarily adopted uh, white member of of an African-American family just, you know, brought you different different things off the page. But until then, reading was my my best chance of 
of trying to get some grasp on how race shapes the lives of, of people in the interior as well as uh, as well as how you move to society. And then they're on assignment one day, and something happens that completely floors her. Renee Ferguson, she's doing this story about a convicted sex offender who was working at a daycare facility. So she wanted to take a hidden camera into the facility and to capture footage of seeing this man doing what he was doing, carrying on his day-to-day life on the job. So this was part of an investigative story that she was doing basically to to uncover the fact that this person who maybe should not be working in this facility was working in this facility. Yes, absolutely. So she, a camera woman, and Mayor Buttigieg pull up to this building in West Chicago and the facilities in the basement. She tries to go into the facility and the security guard won't let her in the door. Then she sends her camera woman, who's also African-American, to try to get into the building. And the same security guard waves her away, says she can't go in. Then she sends her young white male intern. And he gets in, he gets the camera footage, and he comes out with this tape for a story that would eventually win Renee Ferguson one of her seven Emmy Awards. They didn't even ask him any questions or anything. And it was it was breathtaking to me. Renee Ferguson realizes there was something that Pete Buttigieg was able to get that she couldn't get. And she says to him, well, today I understood what white privilege looks like. And Pete Buttigieg responds, well, it doesn't look like me, does it? And she says, it did today. And you have to think about how many doors that are open for you that are not open to anyone else. I talked with my husband about it afterwards, and he said, no, Renee, that's that's the world. He said he gets to walk through it one way, and you and I and people of color get to walk through it a different way. And so what does Buttigieg at the time say, or, or Buttigieg now, say about this experience of being shown in very real personal terms, the way that he can access spaces that other people cannot. He doesn't remember this incident incredibly clearly, but there are several other incidents that happen while he's with Black people during his college experiments that are very similar, that he sees them being questioned. Uh, I had a college roommate. I remember spending a day or two at at his place in Potomac, crashing uh, at his place with his family and um, being with him in his neighborhood, uh, mostly white suburban neighborhood, and I think he and I were walking, and somebody, um, someone, kind of a- approaching us and and asking him if he lived in the neighborhood, and, and not asking me. He sees them being treated differently. And then later that same day, being at a graduation party for a friend of his, who was also black, but most of the uh, folks who've gone to that high school, I guess most of the folks at the party were white. Uh, and somebody, by way of small talk, we came in asking him if he was related to her, even though they looked nothing like each other. He talked about going to Harvard at a time when he felt a lot of people were trying to push this idea that we were moving toward a colorblind society. Uh, I asked a friend of mine uh, about whether he, he was black, about whether he felt that way during his time at Harvard. He, he, he said not at all and talked about all the ways that you get reminded 
that he felt he was being reminded of race kind of on a daily basis there. He starts to get this feeling that as a white person, he has access that other people don't have. And he can also be the agent of really uncomfortable situations for African-Americans. And so his idea is to try and be the type of person who doesn't get in the way. He wants to be a person who acknowledges his privilege and also doesn't do things that really make African-Americans uncomfortable. First of all, it makes you want to make sure you're not part of the problem. Uh, and I think it made me a little more aware of my own whiteness over time. Um, because a part of the thing about being white is not having to be reminded very much of race unless you're intentional about it. And so trying to just be more alert as well as try to search more and understand others' experiences better, uh, I think was, was part of how I tried to respond. And what is your sense of to what extent he has been successful at that? Well, it's almost his hesitance that he might make African-Americans uncomfortable, that becomes a problem for him. Because he continues to do these things that demonstrate a lack of familiarity with the culture that raise the eyebrows of people who are working with him. There are some big issues in South Bend, including uh, his decision to fire a Black police chief his inability to hire Black police officers. It went to show that this was a man who did not have a fluidity or a flexibility with the culture. And as a person who's running for president, it became more of something that's a little unusual, but a problem, a deficit, that people are looking at this man of great intellectual curiosity, a man who speaks multiple languages, some of which he learned just because he wanted to read a book in its original translation. Someone who learned how to play Australian instruments and is a very apt pianist. He had all these curiosities in this quest for understanding. And yet sometimes it feels to folks that he did not have that same quest understanding for actively learning about African-American culture. Those who have met with Mayor Buttigieg, those who like him and don't like him, they all say the same thing. They all say that when they talk to him about racial issues, he's a great listener. He responds thoughtfully. He wants to understand. He demonstrates that. And at the same time, they're surprised and frustrated when he does things that come off as being naive and at worst disingenuous. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. And now one more thing from weather reporter Andrew Friedman about the downside of 5G. If there were blind spots introduced into those satellites, the most important piece of the puzzle of a weather forecast would suddenly be less reliable. 
5G is a cutting-edge wireless network that makes phones much faster and helps other technology work better. And there's a push to expand 5G in the U.S. But scientists are worried that the expansion of the network could interfere with weather sensors and introduce bad data to meteorology. Forecasters would have to fiddle with the computer models to get it to either ignore the unreliable data or somehow correct for it through different algorithms. The technological development that's edging us towards this future, where we're pitting weather forecast accuracy against telecommunications advances, is 5G transmissions at a very particular frequency. The instruments that are on these polar orbiting satellites reflect back at a particular frequency. And one of the 5G bands that telecommunications companies want to use, especially in dense urban telecommunications networks, is at around that same frequency. There have been, over the past couple of years, negotiations among science agencies in the United States and around the world with telecom companies, with the FCC, over whether or not to auction off certain bands of radio spectrum. They auctioned off for a couple billion dollars a certain spectrum to particular companies. And now they're going to be able to deploy uh, equipment that operates around those frequencies. The problem is that NOAA and NASA say that that will interfere with their satellites, which then means that it'll corrupt the data that goes into computer models to predict the weather. The most likely case is that weather forecasts on a routine basis become less reliable for a time and that the experts at the National Weather Service, at NASA, and other agencies figure out ways to get around it. But the worst case scenario really is, you know, viable. And that is that at a time when extreme weather events are happening more frequently and severely due to climate change and other factors, we could have less warning of them. Andrew Friedman writes about weather and climate change for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've got a second, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It helps other people find our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and So Others Might Eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. Learn more at posthelpinghand.com.